Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The recently fired director of the state courts has filed complaints with the Judicial Commission against the four liberal justices that fired him two weeks ago. He filed an additional complaint against the Milwaukee judge slated to replace him. <coughs> the Journal Sentinel reports that Randy Koshnick, the complainant, contends that the state constitution bars Milwaukee judge Audrey Skirowski from taking the administrative position until her term as a judge ends in 2025. Both the former director who filed the complaint and the person he filed the complaint against cite the same 2008 opinion, written by former Attorney General J.B. Van Hollen, as the legal basis for their action. The high turnover of Madison's school principals continues this year as 13 out of 44 elementary and middle school principals either resigned, retired, or transferred to administrative positions, according to the Capital Times. Where are they going? This year, five principals switched roles within the district, five took positions elsewhere, and three principals retired. Only two principal positions will be filled with educators from outside the district. The rest will be filled by transfers or promotions from within the district. Republican state lawmakers are seeking support for legislation that would prohibit UW labs from conducting studies where viruses become more readily infectious, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. This research is known as gain of function. The legislators from De Pere and Oconto in northeast Wisconsin cite a 2009 incident at UW-Madison, which resulted in a federally <coughs> imposed fine of $40,000. A UW spokesperson said, quote, The ability to safely study harmful viruses, bacteria, and other pathogens is critically important for protecting public health and the food supply, end quote. The issue of gain-of-function became more prominent in the Senate hearings on the origins of COVID. At the hearings, Senator Rand Paul accused Dr. Fauci of financially supporting gain-of-function experiments in the Wuhan lab. Fauci denied the accusation but said that a study of virus mutation is necessary to prepare for what could occur in nature. The search for affordable housing on campus is more challenging for students at UW-Madison this year than at any previous time. That'll hardly come as a shock. In addition to the influx of 36,000 new residents to the city in just the past decade, the flagship university admitted a record number of freshmen last year, 8,645, about 500 more than expected. <coughs> Pardon me. Admission was offered with little new dormitory space becoming available. Many students opted to stay in the dorms because there is no place to move that's affordable and accessible to campus. The median monthly rent for a studio apartment is now $1,300 a month in the city as a whole, but substantially higher in the campus area. Students are also competing with downtown workers, of course, for living space. All of this has resulted in Madison having the biggest increase in rental costs in the U.S. in the first half of the year. A proposed new home next to the Old Spring Tavern on Nakoma Road received general support from the City Landmarks Commission on Monday. But the owners of the proposed 4,500-square-foot home adjacent to the landmark were instructed to reduce the width of the home before they bring the project back again for approval. 
The Civil War era Old Spring Tavern has been listed as a landmark by the National Register of Historic Places since 1974. Some neighbors and historic preservationists have opposed the plan, saying that it is too big for the site, but the city preservation planner uh, Heather Bailey recommended approval of the project. Extreme heat in prisons is no longer a problem just for southern states. Wisconsin's largest prisons are not air-conditioned and retain heat throughout the long summer. A report from the Stateline News Service notes that legal advocates have argued that the long-term hot conditions in prison constitute cruel and unusual punishment of a sort prohibited, of course, by the Eighth Amendment. The lack of air conditioning and inside temperatures that are higher than the environment outside creates heat-related illnesses, increased violent incidents, and high staff turnover. In a study of prisons in the northeast region of the U.S., a two-day heat wave resulted in a 21% increase in mortality. Other than the installation of some air conditioning in staff-only areas, little has been done in Wisconsin to address the problem. Personal fans are considered a luxury and are often too expensive for inmates' limited financial means. Swifties, it's now your time to shine. Wisconsin's Chimney Swift Working Group would like you to know that Chimney Swifts will be migrating through Wisconsin from now until October. The small, smudge gray bird is best identified by its slender body and long and narrow wings and short tapered tails. In Madison, the Audubon Society is hosting a watch event at the Blessed Sacrament Church next month. Contact the Madison Audubon Society for more information. And those are the day's headlines. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Today, Wisconsinites mourn the death of the influential Native American leader Ada Deer, who passed away last night at the age of 88. Deer was an organizer and trailblazer who helped end the policy of Indian termination and secure federal recognition of the sovereignty of the Menominee people. Our producer, Nate Carlin, has this look back at her life. I asked, how can we do something about this? We have to stop this. We don't want our land lost. And uh, he was very kind of hesitant. And I said, well, what's the solution? I was re- now, when I decide to do something, I, I get to it. That's Ada Deer speaking to WORT shortly after the release of her memoir in 2019, describing her early political activism. Deer played many roles social worker, trailblazer, politician, federal administrator, and mentor. But perhaps her most well-known accomplishment was her push in the early 1970s to restore rights to the Menominee tribe. That culminated in 1973 with the signing of the Menominee Restoration Act, which reinstated federal recognition of the Menominee tribe and restored the federal government's treaty obligations. It was the tipping point in formally closing the federal period of assimilation and termination, under which Congress sought to renege on its agreements with sovereign Native American tribes and sell off their land. Those termination policies, which reached a zenith in the 1950s, have had lasting effects on U.S. tribal relations today. Eventually, nearly 50 tribes would have their federal recognition restored, and with it, a renewed focus on Native American self-determination. Deer would go on to serve as chairperson of the newly re-recognized Menominee Nation and would help organize the new tribal government, helping to draft a new constitution and seeking harmony between factions that had emerged in the Menominee tribe. In 1977, Deer returned to UW-Madison, lecturing in the American Indian Studies program and the School of Social Work. She became active in democratic state politics. 
Twice she ran for Secretary of State in Wisconsin, in 1978 and 1982, losing both elections. In 1992, she mounted a campaign for Wisconsin's 2nd Congressional District. In doing so, she became the first Native American woman from Wisconsin to run for Congress. After winning the Democratic primary in the race, she declared herself me nominee. In that campaign, she took the advice of her auto mechanic and refused to accept money from political action committees. She ran on a platform that emphasized access to education and addressing economic inequality. And her slogan, nobody runs like Ada Deer. She eventually lost out to Republican incumbent Scott Klug. Deere would go on to serve in the Clinton administration as head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, becoming the first American Indian woman to do so. Through all of her political advocacy and work, Deere emphasized the importance of her identity as Menominee, as a woman, and as a social worker, and how it informed her work. And my mother was very helpful in helping me develop a positive identity derived from my being a member of the Menominee Indian tribe. So every person, let me say, needs to know who they are, where they come from, and have an understanding of what this means to them. And so I'm usually identified as an American Indian woman, and I, I cherish that. But I'm also half and half. My mother was English of English heritage, and so I'm half and half, and I claim both sides, and I don't see any conflict. I feel enriched by both of my heritages. A fearless advocate, Deere also battled racism, sexism, and classism. She recounted some of those experiences in her 2019 memoir, Making a Difference, My Fight for Native Rights and Social Justice. That same year, she was inducted into the Native American Hall of Fame. In 2020, she was awarded the City-County Humanitarian Award from Dane County and the City of Madison. And earlier this month, on her August 7th birthday, Governor Evers declared it Ada Deer Day in Wisconsin. Her passing was announced last night around midnight by Democratic Chair Ben Wickler. And today, notables across the country offered their condolences and statements. Governor Evers characterized her as a trailblazer, changemaker, champion of indigenous communities, and someone always remembered for kindness and compassion. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin... Wisconsin Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard, and Deb Holland, the first Native American to head the U.S. Department of the Interior, also posted tributes. The Menominee tribe, too, expressed their condolences, saying her dedication to improving the lives of Native Americans will never be forgotten. In the second half of this broadcast, we will listen to clips from an interview Ada Deer gave during her historic 1992 congressional campaign. Reporting for WORT, I'm Nate Carlin. A new family care home under construction on Monona Drive is looking to offer care to people without support as they reach the end of life. WORT reporter Elizabeth Walsh toured the home and spoke with the project's leaders to learn more. A unique new project is popping up on the east side of town. Right next to Crema Cafe and with a beautiful view overlooking Lake Monona is an unassuming house, but inside is a lot of love and care. The project is Solace Home, a nonprofit organization formed in 2018 whose mission is to provide a home for people who have no place to go and no one to support them at the end of life. They are specifically looking to support people who are unhoused or are housing insecure. Solace Home is not a hospice provider or a medical center. They are an adult family home. That means they provide shelter, support, and comfort for those in need as they are dying. The house is located at 4142 Monona Drive. As soon as they bought the house, they were welcomed by the Neighborhood Association with open arms, and the support hasn't stopped there. The house is nothing short of a community effort. Every Saturday, a crew of volunteers comes to work. The volunteers have done everything from the demolition process and the plumbing to planting the gardens outside. They are planning to open their doors and host their first resident by the end of the year. I spoke with two leaders of Solace Home, 
Anne Catlett, the founder and president, and Laura Rose, the interim executive director, about how the project got started and what this unique form of care will look like. So I've never heard of a home like this. To me, the idea is very new and unique. Can you guys tell me a little bit about how you came up with the idea of Solace Home and how you guys got this started? Well, I I started looking into it when I, as a physician, discharged someone to the street who should not have gone to the street, someone who was sick and had a terminal illness that needed a lot of care. And so I started you know, wondering about this. I did then, at about, about the same time, I think I already knew of a place in Washington, D.C. that operates much like we will operate. So that place is called Joseph's House. I went and um, got some experience there and saw what they were all about, and I felt the absolute soulfulness of that place, how it was kind of hard to tell the difference between who was staff and who was patient and who was visiting and who was volunteer because their model was so fully lived out in terms of non-hierarchical, compassionate presence. So I was very moved by that. So then started learning more. There are a handful, probably at least eight to 10, other similar homes in the country who specifically look to, uh, to serve the vulnerable populations in their in their community. So we're not the first. Um, we will be the first in Wisconsin, though. So that means we've had to make up a lot of this as we go and had to learn hard things about how do our state regulations fit with our mission, and you know how you know, because we're new, we've had to sort of explain ourselves over and over again to people who may be able to fund us. But that's been exciting too. So you've had this idea for a while now, and you mentioned to me that you guys have been in organization since 2018. So is this the first project you're working on? Is this the first home you'll be opening? Absolutely. This is this is it. This is what we've been aiming for for years. We became incorporated in 2018, and a group of us started talking about this and meeting regularly in 2015. And then actually the seed of the idea was even older than that, but it, we'll, we'll say 2015 was when we really started gaining traction. And then the last two years have been extremely active. We do know from talking to our partners throughout the country who develop these kinds of homes that it's not unusual for it to take quite a while for the group to coalesce, for the processes to get in place, the money to be raised. So we're not feeling too bad that we're at this stage of the game. We're really excited that we are actually about to open. So how do people find you guys? How do people, how do you get people to come here? We expect that most of our referrals will come from hospital discharge planners. So for people to come to Salah's Home, they need to be hospice eligible. To become hospice eligible, they need to have some kind of contact with the medical system so that a a diagnosis and a prognosis could be given so that hospices can decide about eligibility. So any of our residents will have had to have that kind of contact with the medical system at some point, which is why we think mostly they'll come from the hospital. And then, so is it free of cost for the residents? How does that work? Well, we will not turn anyone away because of inability to pay. So what would day-to-day care look like here? Day-to-day care would be um, really tuned in to what the individual needs, and people will be on all different levels of care probably. 
Uh, for those who are not bedridden yet, it will be helping them with activities. For for example, if they want to go visit friends or if they want to attend something in the community or if they want to get engaged in some kind of project here, we have a lot of people who've already expressed interest in providing activities for them, such as art projects and such. Um, it will really be dependent on what they want. We're really geared towards what the resident wants to participate in. Um, and then as they progress through their illness and perhaps become bedridden, um, we are going to be 100% uh, available for wheelchair care. Uh, we've built this place to accommodate that. And um, at that point, um, volunteers who are specifically trained, volunteers and staff will provide personal care such as bathing and dressing and helping with f- feeding, etc. Anything that a family would do. And then the medical cares would be provided by the hospice staff. So then in terms of volunteering, do you have to have a healthcare background to work here or do you look for anyone to volunteer? A huge range of roles that people can choose from. Caregiving is one of them. If caregiving is something they choose, we, we'll have requirements they need to meet. Uh, fortunately, we do have several retired or near-retired healthcare professionals that have expressed interest in that, but we, we could always use more. Um, and then beyond that, we have people who will do vigil, bedside sitting and vigil, um, end-of-life doula, and then things like trans- transportation of residents to appointments, um, food preparation, yard work, gardening, uh, handyman, handywoman, that kind of thing. So any, did I forget anything important? No, but I'm going to just shift it a little bit when you talk about, you know, do they have to have healthcare experience? I would, you know, we have never said that, but I would say someone who wants to volunteer, especially with the residents here, they should be pretty comfortable with issues of death and dying or pretty comfortable with issues of impoverishment and people who are living on some edge. If they're new to both of those, then coming into this space will be a little difficult, right? So we hope that they have they bring something, kind of some wisdom or experience in one of those areas. And the last thing I want to say in terms of a requirement and what we're looking for in a volunteer is they really have to be able to align with our values. So we um, are... an organization that values diversity and equity. We want to hold ourselves to high standards in terms of doing some justice work. This place, I've used the word soulful probably a couple of times, we feel like that there is this spirit of love that does and will happen here, but that's love without a dogma or necessarily a a religious a name attached to it. So anybody who comes in needs to be really, really welcoming. And you mentioned the idea of being comfortable with death and dying, and that's like very heavy. Would you speak to like how you kind of take that on and deal with that and um, kind of how you try to not let it kind of weigh you down as much and kind of that mental process? Oh boy. That's a really great question, and it's actually a hard one to answer because I've had times in my career where I have felt like the weight of so many people's deaths that I've experienced or participated in, um, I was carrying that in some way. And sometimes it, I, I couldn't really find a way to not carry that. But I, w- I would eventually kind of get there, right? I did, I would get myself away for a while or I would deepen my spiritual practices or do whatever I needed to do so I could continue to do the work. I will say that most of the time people who are dying and their families feed the people who are doing 
the care. They feed them in a really big way in terms of their vulnerability, the intimacy that can develop there. I mean, what a privilege to be in that space with someone when they maybe they're afraid, maybe there are unresolved issues in their family, and they invite you in to participate in that time with them is extremely powerful and it really gives back a lot. So I would say most of the time I felt like I was getting more than I was giving in doing the work with death and dying. I just actually can't wait to sit bedside again and to not have the administrative tasks in my head, but have the more kind of soulful tasks in terms of vigiling with people, just being a compassionate presence trying to set the tone in the home of a a kind of acceptance and peacefulness and all of that. That's what I'm excited to do next, once once we're open. So what are some of the biggest challenges you guys have run into so far in developing this? Like either in actually constructing the home or otherwise? I know that there were a lot of different models that were thought about in terms of how this, how people at end of life who are alone and and poor can be cared for and you know I think that first obstacle was realizing that we wanted to be independent we wanted to be our own nonprofit and we wanted to have the autonomy to design this program the way we wanted it other than that I think we'll have ample challenges when we open because you know our our residents will have needs and we'll have to discern how to meet all those needs and um well I would say you know when this this be Again, is this idea, right? This lofty idea, like, oh, someone should do this. And then someone decides it should be them. <laughs> like, oh, this, all of the details, the many, many, many details that have to fall into place just to construct an adult family home with a specific mission, just, it blows my mind. But, you know, thankfully, we've had the people on board who help us do it. And we've had fantastic support. Like, UW Health was one of our first yeah, go girl, you know, kind of offers. They just said, yep, unrestricted funds, do what you can and have continued to support us. So we get those boosts right and left, even though it's hard. I just want to say we keep getting these affirmations. This is needed. It's important. You got this. Keep going. So, you know, one thing I've noticed is, um, you know, I've done, I've been involved with a lot of nonprofits in the past and I've never been involved with one like Solace where you really, you just start telling people about the idea and the need and they just stop in their tracks and they're like, oh my God, that's, I didn't never thought about that and it's so needed, you know, and it's just literally people stop in their tracks and look at you and go, wow, that's great that you're doing this. And um, I hope that we, you know, that we're doing it expands bigger, you know, we need people on our team and, um, but we, we feel really, it's just so affirming every time we go to a like a community group or something and they're like wow (laughs) yeah it's very affirming that keeps us going I will say that retired physician in Milwaukee has said please do this and franchise it which we have we have no no ideas of franchising but he said do this because we're going to need to look at this model because we desperately need this in Milwaukee so we think it'll grow that was Ann Catlett the founder and president of Solace Home and Laura Rose the executive director Reporting for WORT News, I'm Elizabeth Walsh. In 1992, Menominee activist Ada Deer came on WORT to discuss her congressional campaign. 
pitted against Republican incumbent Scott Klug, Deere lost the election. But that campaign marked a milestone. Deere was the first Native American woman from Wisconsin to run for Congress. To commemorate her passing and her work, we are playing clips from that interview with Mike Wessenar, originally aired on WORT on October 29, 1992. Deere would go on to serve as the head of the Bureau of Indian Affairs from 1993 to 1997. She died yesterday at the age of 88. I'd like to point out that I am the ultimate outsider. You know, a woman, uh, an educator, social worker, regular person, person of average means, and an American Indian. And these are not you know, high-ticket uh, items uh, in society. By that I mean um, many of the helping professions such as uh, nurses and teachers and social workers are uh, in um, the lower levels of uh, status, although we perform many, many important functions. So uh, in terms of being uh, outside, I am outside. Women have been outside, you know, people of color have been outside, and uh, in my campaign, I am working to open up the system so that many, many more people who've been shut out can be included. I believe with my background that uh, I can represent the district interests very well. I'm mm -hmm. a native of our state, born, raised, and educated here, mm -hmm. a proud graduate of the UW-Madison, and currently on leave from the UW faculty. I have been all across the district. I have met with people in the small towns. I've met with people in the uh, rural you know, farming areas, as well as people and groups here uh, in Madison. I've had a long career of working with many kinds of people all across our country. This ranges from the neighborhoods of Minneapolis to uh, the neighborhoods of New York City to uh, people on my own reservation. And I've served on many boards and committees and commissions, uh, including um, National Board of Girl Scouts, uh, Common Cause, Independent Sector, you know, President's Commission and White House Fellows, both under President Carter and President Reagan. So I have a wide perspective, which gives me um, a wonderful um, opportunity to understand the full scope of problems and issues. In addition, uh, many do know that I was the first woman chair of my tribe, the mm -hmm. Menominee Indian Tribe. I lobbied a major piece of legislation through the Congress, the Menominee Restoration Act, which resulted in historic um, reversal of a federal policy. And during that time, I got a firsthand look at the Congress, and I thought to myself then, I can do a better job than most of these people. Mm -hmm. um, but there are many mediocre people in Congress. There are people that are clearly unqualified. And fortunately for all of us, there are many that are uh, uh, well qualified. I believe it's important for every single person in our society to have education, you know, jobs, a health care system, and access to health care. Um, uh, and with uh, all the people um, part um, participating, um, they will become uh, active uh, players in our uh, economic system. They will be taxpayers. Well, what, does that, what does that mean? Does it mean you're trying to put forward programs that uh, encourage uh, full employment? Yes. Or? yes. Uh, let me, I'm trying to help people understand that the, uh, the Republicans believe in the trickle-down theory. Hardly mm -hmm. anything trickles down. 
I believe in bubble up, which means extending opportunities for education, um, health care, and jobs so, so, so that people will mm-hmm. become um, participants in our economy. And then uh, as they are employed, they will become taxpayers. There are 10 million people here officially that are unemployed. I feel it's extremely important to invest in our people. We cannot ignore the fact that there are 36 million people that are officially poor, 10 million people that are unemployed, 35 million people that have no health care, another 50 to 80 million that have uh, very serious uh, underfinancing in uh, their health care. And uh, this reflects the difference between our backgrounds. He has a business school background. I have a social work, people-oriented background. So in terms of our approach to the deficit, I want to point out that I want to cut the military by 50% over the next uh, five years and put much of this money into the domestic side of our economy. Some of it would go to deficit reduction because as people become taxpayers, then the deficit um, then uh, decreases. We need to um, follow a fair tax policy. Many of the very wealthy people are not paying their fair share of the taxes. Many of the big corporations do not pay their fair share of the taxes. And we need to plug those tax loopholes. We also need to look at entitlements. There are very um, there are a number of wealthy people receiving both Social Security and Medicare, and I think it's fair to ask them to pay um, some um, tax on those benefits. That I will be looking as a uh, social worker, as an educator, with many many years of working with people on issues and on uh, to solve problems. I've had real experience in the real world solving real problems and until and unless we address these serious problems our society will continue to spiral down. I would like to tell people that if we can change it in my lifetime from scholarships to loans we need to change it back and and let me be very specific here. I came to this wonderful university on an academic scholarship from my tribe. I received an excellent education four years at a total cost of $6,500. Now, that was many years ago. That was from 1953 to 1957. Um, However, now, students are confronted with thousands of dollars of loans, and this weighs them down. People graduate. They have to immediately start taking a job and repaying this. Now, of course, I'm not against repaying obligations because I took out a small loan at the time, but it was a very, very small one. People cannot take part in the economy then. They can't buy cars. They can't you know, buy houses and all these things. So we have a very wealthy society, uh, relatively speaking. And um, when we need to get past this economic crisis that we're in right now and work toward having each person um, with the opportunity to develop their talents and abilities through college. Uh, and I'm talking about fellowships and scholarships or apprenticeship programs or vocational programs. Uh, so I have a vision. My vision mm-hmm. is peace, justice, equality for the world. Peace, justice, equality for everyone in our society. And I want to work for a universal, comprehensive, single-payer uh, health care system. We don't have access for many people to uh, good health care at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and job creation is another whole uh, issue. But you can see that um, I'm thinking about individuals, I'm thinking about uh, the total family, the total community, and I disagree 
strongly with the lack of leadership of President Bush, the poor leadership in the Congress, and I know from my 30 years of activism that one person can make a difference. And in this election, I want to point out how every vote counts and every person out there can make a difference in the election results. I feel that uh, with my background uh, in training that I am calling on all of us together to look at the ideals of our country, the ideals of uh, our state, and to move ahead. The uh, Cold War is over, and there will be differences in how we cut the defense budget, but uh, that is what I'm calling for. I'm very realistic. I know that I would be one of 435 in the House. Let me say there are only 29 women in the House, and in the Senate, there are only two women, so I think it's extremely important to have a diversity of, of viewpoint, and this is what I am offering uh, the voters. This is not politics uh, as usual. I will be speaking up, I will be speaking out, and uh, questioning and uh, moving our society ahead. We're approaching the 21st century, and up until now, there have been far too many short-term for-profit decisions made by corporations, uh, in ter especially in terms of our environment. Mm -hmm. We need to preserve and protect our environment. When we har harm our environment, we harm ourselves. And I want to call on my American Indian heritage here and, and remind people that it's really important to look seven generations ahead. So I will have a platform that I will use to advance all of our causes. By our, I mean everybody. Mm -hmm. I am... Uh, deeply committed to improving the life for all people in our society. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru Rob McClure. Well, we got a 1.99 inches of rain on Monday after all was said and done that day. Uh, a pretty typical of the readings around the area, there was a corridor of two to three inch amounts from about central Iowa County northeastward along the Wisconsin River Corridor. And there were also some generally heavier totals to the east of Dane County over towards Lake Michigan, but otherwise amounts in the half inch to one and a half inch range were pretty common. Uh, 1.99 inches was not a record, by the way. That was uh, close, though, a tenth of an inch off the uh, daily record for August 14th so back in uh, 1981. Well, beyond the outside chance of a shower late tonight in our, with our next cold frontal passage, we look to be going back into the droughty conditions for at least another several days and perhaps longer, uh, this time with better heat to uh, pull the moisture that we just got back uh, right out of the soil again. If you have a look at the uh, water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you can see that the uh, zonal jet stream pattern that we observed last week was, uh, as we expected, nothing more than a brief interlude in what has otherwise been a very amplified pattern in the upper air across the continent for most of the uh, summer so far, with upper ridging west and south of us and upper troughing to the northeast. Uh, once again, now we can see that the uh, jet stream at the beginning of the three-day loop there back on Sunday is arcing over the top of an upper ridge extending up into central British Columbia before that ridge gradually flattens over the past couple of days under more westerly flow down to about the uh, Washington-Oregon uh, border. And that westerly flow, which becomes uh, more northwesterly downstream of the ridge over the plains, is currently energizing a prominent upper low uh, east of Lake Winnipeg, which in turn has developed a 
strong, uh, almost autumnal strength surface low uh, to its south, which is what's driven up our southwesterly winds so briskly over the past several hours today. The, uh, that low-pressure circulation will eventually begin cycling cold air southward over us as it presses further east past Lake Superior later tonight, uh, but only for about a day or so because, uh, as you can see towards the end of the water vapor loop, if you're looking at it, way out to the west, the next upper wave is beginning to approach the uh, west coast of uh, Canada and starting to induce the uh, upper ridge out there to expand back northward again. This time, though, all the major modeling sends the uh, wave itself, the trough, northeastward towards about central Hudson's Bay rather than down into the Great Lakes region. So that's going to ensure that once the upper ridge expands northeastward over us with warm southwesterly winds on Saturday pumping up the atmosphere vertically over us, that the warm air will uh, linger in place for at least a couple of days and possibly uh, significantly longer than that as the ensuing cold front then simply spools out behind that departing low rather than pushing southeastward. The longer-range computer models continue to be at loggerheads about the uh, developments past about Sunday or Monday of next week, although all of them contemplate a follow-on wave passing uh, further south through Canada in the kind of Monday-Tuesday time frame, Setting a cooler air mass possibly far enough south to cover us for maybe a day or two here. But it's also quite possible that that cold front uh, ahead of the incoming cool air may uh, stall north of us or near us before the upper ridge then expands northeastward once again later in the week. All the models uh, indeed have us warm again by Wednesday of next week. So it appears we'll have a we will have heat in the longer term with uh, just possibly a break somewhere in the early part of this coming week. Uh, and as for later tonight uh, and our more immediate transition to cooler air, the, there's also a fair bit of dissension about whether we'll see thunderstorms pressing far enough south uh, to cover us as the cold front swings through uh, towards dawn tomorrow. Uh, the lower atmosphere is currently pretty dry, but we will likely moisten up to some extent on sustained south to southwesterly winds overnight. There's also some warm air aloft and uh, some convective inhibition above us, but it, it looks like we may see at least some surviving uh, elevated thunderstorm cells passing uh, in the near dawn hours of tomorrow. Uh, they should exit eastward quickly during the day tomorrow, however. Uh, otherwise, though, uh, at least for the rest of the, uh, the night tonight, high clouds should continue to kind of thicken up as we go through the nighttime hours on strong southwesterly winds at uh, 10 to 20 miles per hour, which will hold temperatures from dropping uh, too much below 70. Dew points will be coming up from the upper 50s where they are now to the low or possibly the mid-60s. Showers and thunderstorms are likeliest between about 5 and 8 a.m. tomorrow morning, passing uh, west to east and uh, likelier north of Madison rather than south. The balance of the day then tomorrow should see uh, clearing skies at least for a while before cumulus growth uh, begins in the late morning or afternoon hours. Those clouds may thicken up for a while in the midday hours in the cooler air coming in above ground level behind the cold front. We may also see some smoke starting to reinvade skies tomorrow from north to south. Uh, temperatures will reach the low 70s on uh, breezy northwesterly winds up at 10 to 20 miles per hour and fairly gusty in the midday hours as well. Uh, winds will slacken in the evening and overnight, and clearing skies will allow temperatures to drop into the mid-50s, perhaps even the low 50s in some spots. Friday, the skies should generally be clear, although uh, smoke circulating southeastward uh, off the top of the incoming upper ridge to our west may obscure skies through uh, parts of the day. 
High clouds will also likely increase uh, in the later hours. Uh, temperatures will reach uh, 80 degrees or so on light to westerly winds, backing southwest and south as we go overnight. And uh, those southwesterly winds will hold the temperatures uh, around 60 or so under mostly clear skies. And Saturday will become increasingly windy from the southwest through the day, so a day similar to this one with temperatures reaching the mid-80s and dew points starting to crawl up into the low to mid-60s where it starts to feel a bit damp. Uh, the temperatures will hang up around 70 during the overnight with the breezy southwesterly winds and possibly uh, 90 degrees is in the offing on Sunday with dew points coming up closer to 70 or better and sky staying mostly clear that day. It looks like we'll clear, stay clear and hot into Monday. At the moment just now, it's uh, 77 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 58. Winds are out of the south at uh, 14 miles per hour, still gusting above uh, 20 miles per hour with some regularity. Uh, mostly clear over the station, just some passing cirrus up above 30,000 feet or so, and the barometer is falling at 29.82 inches of mercury. We go now to August 1969. When radicals blocked traffic, the Eagles Club stayed all white, and the bus system neared collapse. Stu Levitan has those highlights and more from 54 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, late August, 1969. When former Secretary of State Dean Rusk arrives at the Memorial Union on the 27th for a speech to the summer session of the Graduate School of Banking, there are no university or city police at the Memorial Union, even though the Young Socialist Alliance and other radicals had publicly vowed to disrupt the event, which they do. About 200 demonstrators shrieking invective and pounding on the theater doors, forcing Rusk to stop twice. It's worse afterwards. When Rusk is spotted leaving through a rear service entrance, his car is pelted with a half dozen stones and a large stick. Then protesters swarm up Park Street to University Avenue, partially blocking traffic in front of Chadburn Hall for about half an hour, pounding hoods and cursing men trying to drive through as, quote, fascist bloodsuckers. The radicals scatter on the arrival of Madison police, who make no arrests. Membership in the Fraternal Order of Eagles and its local area on Jennifer Street remains all white as its national convention votes to retain the racial restriction in its membership bylaws. That puts the 700-member Madison area at risk of losing its local liquor license in 1971, because the city council set that deadline for the Eagles, Elks, and Moose to remove their ban on non-white members or lose the privilege of selling alcohol. Local Eagles President Dick Hansen doesn't think much of the council's mandate, or apparently of integration. Quote, I think the whole thing is unconstitutional, telling us how to run our club, he says. It's just like with churches. We have ours, they have theirs. I suppose they will want to come into our churches, too. They got their way down south, now they want to run everything in the north, too. Hansen complains when the State Journal prints his statement, but he doesn't deny he said it. But other local Eagle leaders take a more hopeful tack, and note how quickly the anti-bias move is gaining support. 
1968, the convention voted by 97% to retain the whites-only clause. This year, a full 40% voted for change. Madison's mass transit system teeters on the verge of chaos as the shareholders of the private Madison Bus Company vote to dissolve the company and go out of business on November 10th, the day the ongoing city subsidy is scheduled to run out. But due to higher-than-projected subsidies over the summer, money that should have lasted until November runs out before the end of the month, forcing the council to pass an emergency appropriation. A majority of the Common Council wants the city to buy the bus company and operate the system itself, exactly what voters called for by approving two referenda in April 1968. The council directs Mayor William Dyke to seek the necessary federal funds, but he refuses to do so, preferring to continue the city's subsidy to the private company instead. Although the company can't shut down until the Public Service Commission gives it permission, the council schedules a special meeting for early September to decide between private enterprise and public ownership. On the 24th, the Police and Fire Commission ignores the city's promise it would not punish firefighters after their three-day strike in late March and suspends Fire Captain and Union President Ed Durkin for six months for leading the illegal action. The commission, led by former Republican Party leader Stuart Becker, says it doesn't have to honor the amnesty agreement because it is an independent body created by state statute and was not involved in the negotiations that settled the strike. The commission decides it's so independent it doesn't even let city attorney Edwin Conrad speak at the public meeting to defend the amnesty agreement agreed to by the council and former Mayor Otto Feske. You are an interloper here, Attorney Becker tells him. Durkin's lawyers ask for a 10-day stay so he can make sure his city insurance will remain in force. But Becker says he's, quote, reasonably sure Durkin will retain his fridge benefits, and the commission orders the suspension to start immediately the morning after the vote. The suspension, the longest the commission has ever imposed, will cost Durkin $6,500, which the union quickly moves to make up. Durkin begins his suspension as his attorneys plan the appeal. Madison's first and still only black alderman is back on the city council after a unanimous vote reinstating Eugene Parks as alder from the 5th Ward. Parks had automatically lost his seat when he inadvertently moved out of the district by taking an apartment on the wrong side of North Murray Street, across the street from his district. Although he was just elected for a two-year term in April, Parks will have to run again in April 1970, since he is now serving by appointment. Madison's newest mayor wants to preserve our oldest buildings. Mayor William Dyke confirms he's been consulting with the Te Chopra Foundation and will soon introduce several ordinances for historic preservation. City Attorney Conrad recently issued an opinion, which Dyke requested, confirming the city has the necessary legal authority. The Plan Department is publishing a walking tour booklet for Mansion Hill entitled Sandstone and Buffalo Robes, prepared at Dyke's Direction. Former Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi becomes a rich man, thanks to Madison developers David and Jim Carley. When Public Facilities Incorporated, the housing development firm they founded with Lombardi, the chairman of the board, is bought by a company from Cleveland. Lombardi, now coach and general manager of the Washington football team, will net about $1.8 million from the sale. 
the brothers will split about 10 million. The biggest raid on hard narcotics in local history leaves 23 persons facing 31 charges, 19 counts for selling or possessing heroin, cocaine, or methadone, two for selling LSD, the rest for marijuana or hashish. And a Madison hero falls to a tragic and especially senseless death. Marine Corporal Charles Le Bosquet, recipient of two Purple Hearts, is killed by friendly fire in Quang Nam Province on the 21st, three months before turning 22. A platoon radio man who had been in-country since February, Le Bosquet was a member of First Baptist Church and a 1965 graduate of West High School. He attended the University of Wisconsin before joining the Marines in 1968. He is survived by his parents, who live at 2555 University Avenue, and his wife, the former Diane Thorstad, 4409 Cherokee Drive. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Our reporter was Elizabeth Walsh. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan and the WORT Archiving Collective. Warren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Nate Carlin produced it. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 